I'm Victoria, and this podcast is all about running, marathon training, and run coaching. It is packed with useful tips to help you grow as a runner. I am a 13-time Boston qualifier and mom of two who started running as an adult. I learned a lot on my journey, and in 2014, I launched an online run coaching business to help other runners. Now, we employ several run coaches and are one of the largest online run coaching companies. We teach you the secrets to reaching your potential in the sport of running. We give real talk discussing personal stories of injuries, setbacks, and PRs. Think of this as a conversation with serial marathoners who share the lessons that we learned along the way. This is the Run for PRs podcast. Today we are doing another episode of Ask the Coaches. We've done this two times in the past, so this is a little bit different than our traditional format, but we're going to start doing them a little bit more regularly just because we like to answer your questions as an audience and a follower on social media or just emails that come in asking for us to address certain questions that you guys have. This is why we do this podcast and this is why we love to be run coaches because we like to help people with their individual struggles or questions that they have with the sport of running. So we will be diving in with some of these questions. We put it up on our social media Instagram um, on Tuesday and then we'll be releasing this a few days later. So we have five questions today and these are questions that I think a lot of athletes have over the course of their running career. So definitely going to be a lot of knowledge bombs on this episode. Um, So I'm just going to talk about the five questions before we dive in and start answering them so that you know what's to come. So the first question is about mental strategy for the marathon race day and how to break up the race mentally. Um, This person, I talked to her a little bit. She, in particular, around mile 20, 19 of the marathon, she just says that she checks out and that it's hard to stay mentally tough towards the end of the race. And so we're going to be talking about strategies that you can do throughout your training cycle so that you can really become mentally tougher and not really hit that um, wall of boredom at the end of races like that. Um, The next question we had was um, about, I think I have a stress fracture in my shin area. Um, How long am I going to be out for? How do I know for sure if this is a real injury? And so while we're not doctors, we are just here to tell you kind of where to go and what our experience is with athletes after they have the diagnosis, kind of what that looks like in terms of how long you have to take off um, and then what the plan is coming back because no one wants to go from, you know, injury coming back only to be set back again. So we're really going to be doing a deep dive into how you can avoid that from happening in the future and maybe talking about some things that could cause um, such injuries because it's really good to try to avoid any sort of injuries like that if possible. Next, we are going to be answering a question about pacing um, and how to get faster, right? So a lot of people want to know how they can get faster. This um, person in particular says that they struggle to get under 10-minute pace miles, um, and they just want to know like how much faster can they conceivably get if they commit to training and commit to the process. Like, Can they get faster, and what sort of training should they do to get under that 10-minute pace? Um, then question number four was, how can we keep efforts easy when it's super hot, flaming hot, very humid? Because um, even today when I went out on my run, I was going very easy. It was an easy effort, but honestly, it didn't feel easy, right? So we're going to be talking about um, that whole process of running in the heat, heat acclimation, and running more off of feel during these times and obviously addressing the elephant in the room of, you know, sometimes it's just, it always it can feel hard to run easy even if um, you are going slow because it, it's hot out there. And then question number five was, is it okay to include workouts into my long run? Um, and then she mentioned doing 20% hard, 80% easy. And I know we've talked about that 80-20 principle before, so we're going to do a deeper dive into what that actually means and then how to know if you're ready to 
add workouts into your long runs and what that might look like for someone depending on the distance of race you are training for. So I will kick things off with that first question. We're going to be talking about the mental strategies for marathon days. So this person wants to know how can they break up the race mentally? How can they stay strong the last, you know, six, eight miles of a marathon? Because 26.2 miles is an extremely long way to run, right? So you have to stay motivated. You have to stay focused to get all the way to that finish line. And it can take a lot of mental toughness, willpower, all of those things in addition to the physical fitness. Um, She said that during training, all of her long runs go really well. So she is someone who every single 20 miler, every single 18 miler goes great. She feels like she could keep going. Um, it just feels like everything's clicking. And then kind of on race day, it's a little bit anticlimactic. She kind of loses um, motivation towards the end, just isn't focused, those sort of things. So I mentioned to her one example that really comes to my mind is Boston 2018 and kind of what happened there with um, the elite women's race. So as some people may or may not know, it was horrible weather that day. Um, I ran the race just with the group of the masses, right? But what happened in the elite race is very interesting. So Jason was actually spectating the marathon that day. So I will let Jason kind of speak a little bit about what happened in that elite women's field that day and with a lot of the elites that ran. Um, And then do you remember who took second place? Um, Yeah, I mean, so I I went around, I caught the subway to various parts on the course, I think went to two or three spots, then the finish. And each time I'd get to the spot, you know, you'd hear people chatting about um, the new leaders of the race or who was kind of falling off the pack. So you heard about the guys like Galen Rupp dropping out and a bunch of the women, I think Shalane Flanagan was in the race. And um, so at some point we heard that Deslin was leading the race and, um, you know, you just see the wind was just uh, unbelievable that day. And so you saw the people that were by themselves, how just mentally tough they had to be. And if you were in a little pack, you were fortunate to at least um, have some support around you. Um, but I believe at the end of the women's race, it came down to a, a a person that wasn't even in the elite field. So she was just in the open field and she had no idea that she was in contention um, to place that high. Right. Yeah. So she was just in the masses race. She was not in the elite field um, and her name was Sarah Sellers and she ran, gosh, I don't even know. I think it was like in the, the low 240s. Um, I believe the winning time that day, Des Linden ran like 240 something. And so the woman who crossed the line second, she wasn't even in the elite race. She was just in the regular race. She had no idea that she got second place. Um, and honestly, it stirred up this whole thoughts of like, whoa, like that's a little strange because this has never happened before, right? Um, typically in a regular race it's the women in the elite field who are getting first second third tenth you know all the way down the line but what happened that year was really a unique and interesting situation um, and there's a lot of speculation that has happened since then like why why did she win and or why did she get second place uh, but what I listened to a lot of interviews that Sarah Sellers did, the person who got second place. And she said, you know, a lot of her training was just done in really adverse conditions. And so she would like work. Um, She was a nurse, so she would work all day on her feet. um, And then she usually did her training runs after work. So she was pretty exhausted when she was doing her training is what she was alluding to in a lot of these interviews. Um, And there were a lot of speculation that came out that like, hey, because she trained in this exhausted state of like, she was mentally just, zapped from the entire day and all of those things, she was able to really get gritty um, in those weather conditions and whatnot. And so I do think there is a little bit of truth to that. Um, When you are training in really adverse conditions or mental adverse conditions where, you know, you just had a really stressful day at work and all of those things, and then you're going out for your run, even though mentally you have like nothing left in the tank, When you're facing that in training day in and day out, it allows uh, you during the marathon to have that, that little extra edge of dipping into that well and that experience doing something like that. Whereas... I think, um, you know, I'm not to say that the elites didn't have that, and I'm sure that they do, but I think the more you practice um, using that mental muscle before your run, the better equipped you can be for really tough times in a race. So is there anything that you'd like to add 
to how can you, you know, stay motivated, stay strong after three, four, maybe even five hours worth of running when you're in those final miles of the marathon? Because I know it can be really easy to check out. Do you think that there's any strategies that you've done over the years or that you recommend to your athletes to try to do before a marathon? Yeah, I mean, this is always a tough one, right? That's why the marathon is so difficult. Um, And people that are able to do this well, I think it boils down to um, their training and putting themselves in those situations where, like you said, training in adverse conditions. So maybe doing a lot of your runs like in the heat or in tough conditions like wind or um, depending on the time of year. And then also um, adding in some of those like um, tougher workouts to your long run to make it more challenging. So that one person that you're referring to, I, I was curious you know, what did her long runs actually look like? If she was running pretty much easy long runs all the time, then yeah, she was probably finishing them feeling pretty, you know, pretty um, fresh. I I remember there was times we were training for Boston and I would purposely throw, I I just kept going around this loop neighborhood around mile 17 because I wanted it to assimilate going up the Newton Hills. And so that really kind of trashed me and it made me feel pretty taxed at the end of the race. And I think it paid off because I had a good race that year at Boston. And so just looking for examples like that of ways you can, Uh, be forced to cope with um, adversity during your long runs, your training, Um, but then also just, um, you know, being patient and breaking up the race into chunks and mentally visualizing like how you want to feel at certain parts of the race Uh, and doing that just beyond far beyond race day. So it starts with your long runs and just always thinking about, you know, coming through halfway, feeling super fresh and relaxed and just kind of waiting for that go time. You know, if we break up any race into um, chunks, take the mile, for example, a lot of times mile athletes, they're going to run four laps. Um, so when they come through with a a lap to go, that's about 75% of the race, that's when it's game time. And so the marathon would be the same thing. You know, when there's about five miles left to go, it's game time. So just kind of approaching your training in that same way. Right. Definitely. And I think like anything, you can do baby steps to get there. Right. So the first thing that everyone's thinking is I have to do something really drastic, my training, but really it's like the little things add up to be bigger things. It's maybe, um, let's say you have to do your 20 mile long run and it's the day after a wedding and you might be tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to move it. I want to enjoy the wedding and, and I'll just move it to the next weekend. And it's like, well, no, like go out, do what you would normally do and then wake up and do your long run. Like not allowing yourself to kind of have those excuses and then to wake up and go, okay, wow. Like this is going to be uh, the practice of mental toughness, right? Or just something simple, like you said, picking a hillier route or um, once it becomes time, and we'll talk about this later with a different question that was asked, maybe adding in some marathon pace miles or some harder um, sort of intervals into a long run if it's appropriate. Um, I did read an article several years ago and I I wanted to find it before this this podcast, but I remember this article was talking about a guy who was having a very similar experience. He was checking out mentally and he said he just like self-experimented with himself. He did like 90 minutes of some sort of like online puzzle. It was like a Sudoku or something online that was like really mentally taxing. So he had to like use his brain and then he would go out on his long run. So he went into the long run, not in a physically exhausted state, but like just mentally um, he'd been working or whatever and solving this puzzle and so it forced him to kind of get a little bit grittier towards the end of that run or even just in the entire run itself because he had already done a task or two um he was already kind of a little uh a drained mentally so you could say um and so I think doing things like that definitely make it so that the marathon um you have that extra mental edge and that extra mental toughness um And just, yeah, trying to do like the somewhat harder thing throughout training, whether that's, you know, oh, it's raining today. Okay, I'm going to run in the rain. Oh, it's it's a little hot today. Okay, I'm I'm still going to do my run, those sort of things. They don't seem like they would be that big of a deal, but just make it so that it's just a little bit extra challenging. And so I think for every single long run you do, you can find one way to like make it just a little bit extra challenging. And so if you're someone who loves running with people, maybe you just do it alone. And I know for some people they're like cringing because they're like, I don't want to run long alone. Um, maybe for someone like me who doesn't really like to run with other people, maybe that's what I do, right? Maybe, maybe for one of my long runs, I don't listen to any music. And for me, that would be, whoa, like that's really hard, but it's doing something that gets you uncomfortable 
so that when you are in a race environment and you have all of your comfort items and everything, then it feels a little bit easier and you're able to um, navigate that that last 10K, um, as hard as it is, you're able to have all those little comfort things that you didn't normally have during your um, your race or during your training runs. So do you have anything else to add to that question? Because I know the marathon can be such a beast um, and that last 10K in particular can be tough. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you mentioned when appropriate, adding in some pace work to your long runs. And I think that, yeah, you scaffold that in so that it becomes more of a, a progressive, um, you know, you don't just start adding in like eight miles at marathon pace. So it's something that it might take a few mar- marathon training cycles to build to, and it might just start with, you know, a couple steady state miles or a couple like alternating miles. I think alternating pace is really good for a long run, especially later in the long run, just because it really allows you, well, it forces you to mentally um, be really in tune with what you're doing and to, to dial into certain paces. And so, you know, a good workout would be like alternating between half marathon and marathon pace just for a couple miles, um, maybe every half mile. So, but there's, you know, there's a whole range of different styles of workouts that we can do to incorporate in your long run. So I think, yeah, it boils down to challenging yourself in new ways, like you said, in those long runs. And it might just be like every third long run that you incorporate um, faster than easy pace work. Right. Yeah. We'll definitely go into more depth into workout specifics in long runs, but even just starting with something as simple as at the start of every mile, doing a little pickup at marathon pace for 60 seconds. Like it doesn't have to be anything crazy. I know on Strava, uh, there's a lot of people that do crazy workouts, right? I mean, it's like, oh, like 14 miles of marathon pace or something. And it's like you build up to that if you want to get to that level. But um, just starting with something as small as 60 second pickups, like 10 times within a 20 mile long run is enough to, to get your body into that um, little intro to, to adding in pace work. And it also allows your body to learn pacing and what does marathon pace feel like. And that is something that's really important. Um, as you kind of progress so that your body can really dial into that, that marathon pace and know what it feels like. So with that being said, I think we kind of covered a lot on that question. So hopefully that was helpful. And now we're going to dive into the next question about the stress fracture and the injury. And we are not doctors by any means, but this person asked, um, you know, I think I might have a stress fracture. Like, how do I know if it's a stress fracture? Uh, what should I do? And, how long would I need to take off? Like if I did get diagnosed, those sort of things. So the first thing that you should do if you think you have any sort of injury is definitely stop running. Um, with bone related injuries, I personally have never had one, but it's really important that if you catch it sooner than later, um, the healing prospects are better, right? So you want to back off immediately. Um, if you think you have something and most major metropolitan areas, you can probably get in to get checked out. Um, within the same day. I know in the Twin Cities area, there's Twin Cities orthopedics. And while they're not going to do um, an MRI same day, they can usually do some sort of imaging so that they can at least see, sometimes they do show up on x-rays, right? Sometimes you can see um, things on x-rays and get get somewhat of a diagnosis. There's also some other tests that they can run, um, you know, sometimes like the hop test and all of those things to get a better idea of, hey, you know, could this potentially be a stress fracture? And it's just really important to kind of rule that out right away and make sure is it what I think it is or not? Um, always better to be safe than sorry. Um, and I know that some people can be a little bit more susceptible to, to these things than others. And Jason, I know that you coached at the high school and college level um, and you probably saw uh, over the course of you know your coaching over the course of the last decade or so, people who've gotten stress fractures. So is there a, like warning signs that usually happen before? Um, what, what do people normally say before um, they end up kind of in this situation? And maybe you didn't coach anyone specifically, but I know just being involved in athletics, it is something that um, does happen. And especially in distance runners, it's something that's, that's somewhat common. It's not normal, but it can be relatively common. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a tricky one because a lot of times that entire area, um, you know, your, your bones are closely connected to the tendons there and the shin. And so it could be, it could be shin splints. Um, so a lot of times, 
athletes might start re- recognizing they're experiencing some pain there and they'll mention it to you and um, you just kind of keep an eye on it. And if it doesn't subside within a day or two, like if it continues to get worse or um, it's just hurting day after day, then there's a, a good sign that it could be something more than just shin splints. And so you kind of have to just take it on a case-by-case basis and know that each each individual is kind of different. And, um, you know, I had an athlete um, that it came on quick for her. And so I kind of knew right away it wasn't going to be good. And so it turns out it was a stress reaction. And so, yeah, as as you, you know, as you kind of assess the pain, I guess, the tolerate and how bad, you know, can you tolerate it on, on a run? Um, does the pain kind of go away after a couple miles? That could be a sign that it's hopefully not a stress fracture. If the pain just stays constant or gets worse, then that's obviously you want to stop running in- immediately. Um, but yeah, I like what you said about just finding somebody to go to, whether it's a PT, an orthopedic place. Um, you know, one thing my PT told me is that if, if, if you go to a, just a general doctor place and say your shin's hurting and they want you to do an x-ray, um, they'll diagnose you with a stress reaction if they see any sort of like swelling or edema on the x-ray. And so that's kind of why you probably want to see someone who's a little bit more experienced with like dealing with athletes because they might have like a different sort of rehab plan for you. Um, so just something to think about there. Yeah, I definitely always like to recommend seeing someone that has that specialty in sports. Um, So whether that's like a specific orthopedic sports doctor, um, if we're talking about foot, seeing a podiatrist that specializes in athletes. And these are all things that you can pretty easily research um, with a quick Google search. I like to see, hey, has this person worked with athletes? And I know a lot of physical therapists, there's people who like rehab, um, more in specific areas, right? So you want to make sure you're getting a physical therapist that has worked with athletes if you're going down that route and all those things. Um, so that's really important. And then just making sure that you're you're getting a checked in on right away. Because like you said, stress reaction, um, that I think that's usually what happens first and then it, it can turn into a stress fracture. But if it, if it's still in like the stress reaction phase, um, then, you know, it's better, right? Like you don't, you don't want it to get progressively worse. And I know, you know, you've heard stories online or whatever, someone running on a stress fracture and then it just like completely breaks the bone or whatever, um, and have to have surgery, all those things. You don't want to run through pain. Um, it's really important to get it checked out, those sort of things. So, If you did get diagnosed with a stress fracture, I think the number one thing that I would look into is obviously you're going to have to take time off, right? Typically from what I've heard from just friends and in the running community, it's somewhere between six to eight weeks, if not longer. It depends on where and it depends on your healing, all of those things. Um, If it's somewhere in an area where there's not a lot of blood flow or if it's a really big bone. um, I know there was a girl I, I did cross country with back in what, like 2011, she actually got a stress fracture in her femur. Um, she was out for a few months. So it can just really vary depending on the severity and depending on where it was. But, you know, after several months off, she was able to kind of rehab back in her running. Um, and then within a few months, she was like running an 800 meter race, like in the national meet or something like that, or like qualifying for nationals, those sort of things. So you can get back into things. It's really important to understand like what caused it, right? So typically speaking, you can pinpoint to why this is happening. So maybe it's a nutritional um, deficit that you're not having. So if you're someone who, if you're a female um, and you don't get your period, like these are like bad, this is not good, right? You need to really be cognizant of if you're overtraining and you're not um, in the optimal state because things start to happen metabolically when you're not getting your period, um, your bone density is plummeting. Um, you just, that's really just a sign of health in general. And so if you're not getting that, I would definitely recommend working with a new, uh, registered dietitian, working with your doctor, trying to see how you can get that back. Um, if not, you know, there's other ways that this may be a cause is if you're under fueling, if you're overtraining, all of those things, it's usually a sign that there wasn't enough rest and recovery built in with the training. 
Um, in the case of the person I knew back in 2010 who got it in her femur, she, I think what ended up happening is she didn't run for two months and then kind of dove back in a train a little bit quickly. Um, and wasn't being like 100% honest with her coach, right? So she said, yeah, no, I trained all summer and all this stuff. And then like reality sets in, oh, actually I didn't train as much as I said I did. And now, you know, after running 50 mile weeks for the last eight weeks, now I have a stress fracture. And so that's how it happens. Even if you have this background, so this person had been running for 10 years, right? Her Basically her whole life. And she'd been running, you know, relatively high mileage, but taking those two months off and then diving back in, that is what caused a stress fracture. So you may think, oh, like I'm not doing anything that abnormal, but little things add up over time. And if your body doesn't have time to adapt to the stress that you're putting on it, then um, things happen. So Uh, When it comes to coming back after a stress fracture, do you have any advice for how someone should come back after stress fracture or after an injury when it comes to easing back into things? Once they're cleared. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, from any injury, when you return, you want to start with um, obviously very light um, volume. So you're going to be, you might only run for a couple minutes total the first day. So it might be run walk intervals of either 30 seconds or a minute. And then, um, depending on kind of how, you know, aggressive you, you know, depending on what the injury is and how aggressive and how much time you have to get back, you know, you might look to do runs every other day. That's kind of how I've come back from a calf injury, but, um, you know, you might just be able to get away with slowly adding like a minute or two each day. And then, um, you know, it's, starting to add back those sustained run efforts, um, just after about five days or so. Yeah, definitely coming back slow, slow and steady wins the race. It's better to be cautious than to overdo it for sure. Um, so that's really good advice there, but definitely seeing a doctor, getting it checked out and working closely with your medical team. So asking them, Hey, like, what do you recommend? And really following their guidelines and then making sure that when you start doing things a little bit more on your own, um, that you do a very gradual approach and make sure you're communicating with your coach or whoever might be helping you with training that, Hey, like I'm coming back from this injury. I want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Those sort of things. Okay. So moving on to the third question, this is a little bit about how do I get faster? Um, this person said that they struggle to get under 10 minute pace miles. They just want to know how much faster can I conceivably get given the fact that like I can't run faster than 10 minute pace. And, um, this really depends. I wish I could have gotten a little bit more background before we did this podcast, but I didn't really get too much, um, in response here, but it really just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So if this is someone who is hoping to run a 5k under 10 minute pace, I would just start with something small, like adding in some speed work and some tempos. And so you want to start really small with these workouts. If you're not doing them at all right now, starting with something as simple as adding in strides to the end of a run a couple times a week. So Jason, will you explain a little bit what strides are and how that can help develop speed in someone? Yeah, so strides, I define them as, you know, an increase in your pace um, for a duration of about 20 to 30 seconds. So you're building up from, you know, about 50% effort all the way up to about 80% or 85% effort. And so um, as you accelerate, your gait is, you know, you're recruiting more of your Uh, motor units and muscles that maybe don't get recruited when you're running easy. And so um, you're increasing your, you know, your, your mechanics as a runner and your overall strength. And so um, you'll, you'll sprinkle those in, like you said, at the end of your run, typically about every like 90 seconds to two minutes, it's nice to have a little break in between them. Um, starting with about four each time, each, each time you do these, um, I would never really do more than six strides in a, in a session, just because we want to save the harder running for, you know, a structured workout day. So, um, that's kind of what strides look like, but yeah, I think for a new runner looking to just improve their 5k time, you know, don't focus so much on like a long run, just get, get in your quicker, um, shorter, like fartlek speed. And then maybe that one tempo run a week where you, maybe it's just starting with five minutes at a tempo pace. And then you just slowly build from there. Right. Definitely working on like that leg turnover and that raw speed and keeping that there. Cause I know it's really popular, like train for marathons and, and dive right into like doing the super long distance stuff. Um, and what can end up happening is people are stuck at a certain pace range, um, uh, because they're never working on that raw speed and they're never bringing that out. So I would recommend doing some strides 30, 20 seconds, um, pretty hard, uh, h- hitting up a track, just seeing kind of what can you do in terms of raw speed and then building on that. So if you're doing a couple strides and then, Hey, like, 
realizing I can actually hit some strides, you know, in the eight, eight minute pace range or maybe even faster. I don't know. Um, then prolonging that to maybe being one minute intervals, right? So can you hold maybe even a, a little bit of a slower pace for one minute and then building, maybe you're going to add in some four hundreds and those sort of things. And then just making sure you're retesting your fitness and doing time trials. So in this case, maybe doing a one mile time trial, two mile time trial, and then retesting your fitness after six to eight weeks and just doing the progressive overload approach, right? So it's not all about quantity and like how much can I do and building mileage all the time. Sometimes it's just really focusing on the quality of your efforts and getting really uncomfortable. And for someone who maybe hasn't done a lot of speed work, this is definitely outside of that comfort zone. And so just seeing maybe how fast can you really go and then breaking it down from there and setting goals along the way. Um, But if this is more of someone who maybe is just a little bit frustrated because you're sitting there on Strava, Instagram, you see, you know, people are always running in the eight, nine minute pace range for, you know, easy runs. I want to be able to all my runs to be a certain pace, right? So there can be that, um, that comparison that goes on as well. So maybe you're someone who just wants all of your runs to be under 10 minute pace on Strava or just on a regular day, you want to just bust out, you know, eight miles at nine something pace or whatever. So we want to be really careful when we talk about um, your easy pace ranges and, and what you want to see on just a regular old run in terms of pace. So you want to train specifically to the event that you're hoping to run. So if you want a really fast marathon or a really fast half marathon, you might be training at very slow paces and compared to your ability levels on most days. So even someone who can run under a four hour marathon, so that would be under nine minute pace for 26.2 miles, they're actually spending most of their easy runs probably in that 10 minute pace range because you have to build your aerobic base and that requires you to really slow down. So you know, running a sub four hour marathon is pretty quick. That's a lot faster than average. And most people, um, really strive for that to be a goal. And then what that training actually looks like is 80% of your runs are going to be in the 10 minute pace range. And then maybe you have two runs per week where you're doing a little bit more pace specific work of things in the eight minute range, that sort of thing. Um, so I think it can be hard with the comparison trap and seeing everyone's training on Strava and all that stuff. So it just really depends on your goals. And I think training specifically for your goals and making sure that you're training at the appropriate paces. So Jason, what do you recommend to someone who really wants to get faster? Where is a good starting point regardless of like where you are now? Cause do you think most people do time trials on their own and then work at the appropriate, um, workout paces? Cause I think that that's a really big obstacle. So how do you recommend one get started on that journey? Yeah, actually that's a great, a great, um, thought is that I don't think most people know where their fitness is at. They don't know what their max efforts are. And, you know, um, I recently kind of have been swimming more for a triathlon and the number one thing that they recommended was doing t- time trials for yourself um, frequently so you can assess your improvement. And so obviously swimming is a lot easier on your body um, impact wise. So you can do that every like four weeks. They recommend just, you know, doing three by a hundred or whatever. And so um, the same concept though would apply for for a new runner who's maybe going to the track. And I like how you mentioned that. Just go to the track, time your strides, for example. And you don't need to do a full uh, one mile or two mile race, you know, every couple of weeks, but it helps to do one to get a baseline. And then you're going to start to notice like, um, you know, obviously if you're training at the, at the right paces that, that you should be based on your fitness, you know, if you're doing, um, you know, let's say you're doing 200 meter repeats at uh, a certain pace, that's, you know, about 85% of your max effort, you'll start to notice over time, like, does this feel a little bit easier? Or am I naturally running these a little bit faster, maybe a second or two faster than I was a month ago, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of why I would focus my efforts is on doing the shorter intervals, kind of keeping track of your pace work and all of that. Right, definitely. And then obviously what goes hand in hand with that, with doing your workouts is you have to keep those easy days easy. And I loved how you brought up the swimming example, because I went swimming and just swim like a quick couple of laps um, because it was a nice day outside and I just could not get myself to physically slow down. Like my body knew one speed and and I'm not much of a swimmer, right? So um, it made me really realize like this is how beginner runners or like people who don't really ever do pace work with running probably feel. They feel like, okay, I have one speed. Like this is it, right? Like it's, it's 
basically swimming. Um, and so it's really important when you're in that mode where you feel like you physically have one speed or you feel like you can't slow down because it would feel so unnatural. I would recommend if you need to, just take a break, take a breather and just like reassess, be like, I'm going way too fast. Maybe it's like a one, two second walk break and then just start back. And if it feels awkward, like I'm barely moving, this feels like a jog, like it doesn't feel natural. That's maybe how it's going to feel the first couple of times because you're doing something new and your body isn't used to that. And you have to develop the muscle memory to be able to really execute that but it's such a valuable skill to learn and for any distance that you're going to do within the sport of running you have to build your aerobic base so you can do all of this speed work on the track but that's really only working on your anaerobic speed but if you're never building your aerobic endurance with these slower miles and allowing yourself to to ramp that up too you're never going to get um fast at anything long distance and you're never going to be able to like carry the speed over you know a mile or two miles um and then even to like the marathon distance so really working on can i just slow down right so if you're someone who does 10 minute pace for a 5k we're talking about going 12 minute pace for an easy run so i think that can be a really good focus too and just remembering that it's a skill that everyone has to learn and everyone kind of struggled their way through it but it can lead to such a big breakthrough so the next question that we have is about these hotter temperatures. So it is so hot here in Minnesota compared to what it normally is in the winter. In the winter time, we have wind chills that are like negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit with the wind chill, um, several sub-zero days. And so we're just not used to these hot temperatures up here. And last week it hit 99 degrees. And so that was super hot for us. But I'm sure people who live in Miami who are listening are probably laughing because that's like a winter day for them. Um, but <laughs> that being said, when you live in a climate that has these seasonal changes, right? So we're not used to heat. When it comes, it comes hard and it can hit you like a brick wall. Um, we are all just very fair skinned. We're going on these runs. We're not used to seeing the sun. The sun is so intense. Um, the, the temperatures are intense. The humidity is intense. There's so many factors that hit you all at once. And it can kind of derail a lot of athletes because they feel like they were making so much progress in the spring when the temps were nice. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, like I can't even run at an easier pace than I normally do without feeling like I need to stop to take a breath, without feeling like I am can't breathe. These sort of things are all very normal and very common. And it's something that like happens every single year and it's almost like we created content knowing that this was going to happen, you know, several months in advance because we're like, this happens every summer. And it's just the effect of the heat acclimation that your body needs to get used to. And so when you're not used to something going in and acclimating your body to running in 75 degrees and 90% humidity and sun, when you're used to like no sun in 40 degrees, it's a shock on the body. So you have to understand that that in and of itself is a little bit of a stress and your body is making adaptations along the way. So with that being said, how can you keep your easy efforts easy on those days, Jason? Do you have any suggestions for starting points? Yeah, um, obviously, you know, there's a couple things you can do when you think about the timing of your run for each day. You know, if you're going to run in the morning, you might experience higher humidity, but the temps might be a bit lower. Um, so you kind of have to weigh those pros and cons. Like, do you prefer to run, you know, in the peak sun when there's lower humidity, or do you rather get the run done in the morning? Um, look for a route that's maybe fairly shaded. Um, you know, we have a couple of good trails around here that I'm thinking of that are pretty well shaded. I would say like 60 to 70% of the run is in the shade, which is really, really nice because it can feel so much cooler, like 20 degrees difference easily um, running in the shade. And so that can make your run just seem a lot more, um, a lot more desirable. And uh, obviously hydration is, is huge. You know, I'm starting to see a lot of athletes leave comments in their logs right now about the, the training and how it's going. And the ones that I think are, are having pretty good workouts, they're still able to hit their paces. Um, I'm attributing a lot of that to being well hydrated because you cannot go into these conditions if you're if, if it's sort of new for you and you're not acclimated yet and, and do well and feel good if you're a little bit dehydrated. And so that's really key, drinking a little bit more, maybe planning um, more fueling on the route if it's a longer run, that sort of thing. Um, 
but yeah, avoiding the sun, I think trying to get out when the temps are, you know, not so hot, um, and being consistent, uh, just understanding that it does take time. And, you know, if you do a workout in the heat and you kind of fail on your paces, don't look at that as a complete, um, like worthless workout because you still put your body through stress and that's going to help as you down the road for future workouts. Or when you get to the race day, if it happens to be hot, your body's going to be kind of used to, you know, stressing itself in the, in the heat. Yeah, definitely. Really good advice for staying in the shaded areas, going at the earlier times of day when the sun isn't full force, maybe, um, and that it's not going to be as warm when you get out that early. Um, really just planning ahead for those things and then understanding that, you know, it might feel harder on those easy days, even if you are slowing down. So I think using like a pace conversion calculator or kind of some of the charts that we post on our social media, just slowing down and then keeping record of maybe like how you feel on each runs, like writing it down. Um, and then looking back in, you know, six weeks, like, are you still feeling just as bad, right? So it usually does take you six weeks to heat acclimate. So if this is the first or second week, um, we still have about, you know, a month until you're really going to start to notice that it's not as bad. And even in the situations where you do become heat acclimated, your paces are still going to be slower because it is hotter out. So I think just going slower. And then like you said, staying hydrated is super key. So maybe when it was colder out, you didn't need to bring water. You didn't need to stop to drink water. But as it gets warmer, especially if you're going early in the morning, you just went eight to nine hours without any liquids while you were sleeping. And overnight, your body typically does lose water weight just because you're you're sleeping and you're not consuming water. So you do usually tend to wake up in a slightly dehydrated state already. So it's really important to drink water prior to your run and then also during your run um, and making sure you're not going into a dehydrated state because that can make everything feel 10 times harder in an already hard situation. So staying hydrated, super key. Um, just, and then giving yourself grace too. So if your paces are 30 seconds, 40 seconds per mile, slower than they normally are on an easy run, that's totally fine. Effort-based is great. Um, sometimes you might notice your heart rate is a little bit higher. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about that over time. I feel like it'll regulate. Um, just make sure you're going off of effort and keeping it, um, nice and easy. And like you said, on workout days, definitely go more based off of effort and don't don't expect to to hit um paces that you were in this spring or you know your ultimate paces on a a workout when it's really hot out because it's not the same as doing it um in ideal conditions your body physiologically is working harder in the heat to keep you cool. So just keep those things in mind. Um, Keep a log of how you feel and what the temperature was. And that can be something that you look back on if you're ever having like doubt later on in the summer, because it will probably end up getting hotter. And it's nice to have that as a little reference to kind of see, okay, I don't feel as bad, or I'm actually running faster than I was back in June in the same weather and that sort of thing. So that's always something that we recommend doing, but just keep in mind that is tough out there and everyone is kind of going through that same struggle, um, whether they're admitting it or not. And, you know, some, some runners who have been running for a very long time, they know how to heat acclimate and they kind of understand the processes. And so they might say, well, I I don't really feel affected by the heat or they're adjusting their paces so smoothly without complication that you start to see like, well, this person isn't suffering as much as I am, but in reality, it's just like everyone kind of adapts to things differently. And so while it might not appear that other people are struggling, um, they definitely are, or they have in the past with similar, um, similar things. So on to the last question about including workouts in the long run. I know we kind of touched on this with the first question that was asked, So this individual wanted to know if it was okay to include workouts into their long run. They also mentioned keeping 20% hard and 80% easy. Um, After asking her a little bit more background, she's actually training for a half marathon and she just doesn't have a lot of time to run during the week and fit in a workout um, in addition to the workout she's already doing. So she's saying like, hey, 
uh, based on my busy schedule, can I do one workout during the week? And then can I do my long run on the weekend um, as a workout as well? Just because don't have a lot of time during the week, that sort of thing. And she's training for half marathon, which is actually like a great um, gateway into doing these long run workouts. So long run workouts is when you're doing your longest run of the week and you're including some pace work in there. And typically where we start to add that in is probably for someone who's training for a half marathon before we, you know, dive in and and give them pace workout in a 20 mile long run during a marathon training cycle. I think this is the perfect time to actually introduce these sort of workouts um, because you're not going as far and because you're more easily able to make maybe an eight, nine, 10 mile long run into a workout Um, that feels a little bit more manageable. We're not probably going too far over 90 minutes at that point, just depending on what pace this person is running. Uh, But when you start to do runs over 90 minutes and adding in pace work, that's like a really big stress on the body. So Jason, can you speak a little bit about what are some of the first sort of workouts that you could do um, in a half marathon training cycle? How do you know if you're ready to add in these sort of long runs? with workout paces? Yeah, good question. If, you know, depending on how your other workouts are going, like, you know, if you're able to sustain a couple miles at like your threshold, like let's say you're doing two or three by one mile repeats at a threshold pace or something like that, then you're probably okay to sustain, um, you know, three miles straight of just like a tempo pace, a little bit slower, closer to your marathon effort. And so that would be a good kind of starting point. Um, you could do a time-based one, so it's not about mileage. So maybe 20 to 30 minute tempo at marathon effort, something like that. That's a good starting point, but I like how you said the half marathon, training for half marathon distance, this is the perfect time to start introducing some pace work in your long run, um, probably every third week, maybe every other. If It really depends on what your week structure looks like. If you're like this person where you're only doing one workout, then you can get away with incorporating a little bit more pace work in your long runs more frequently. But a lot of people like to do like a speed workout on a Tuesday and then maybe a little tempo on a Thursday. So that doesn't leave you a lot of room. Um, to do a workout, um, you know, in your long run as well. So you're probably going to be replacing that second workout with um, some pace work in your long run. Right. So like you said, if you're already doing two workouts during the week, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to recover for that and then end up doing another workout during the weekend. So three workouts in a week would be a lot to be doing. Um, Some people can get away with it, but typically we like to follow the 80-20 rule, which this um, listener had referred to. So she said, as long as I keep 20% hard, 80% easy. And what that means is 80% of your weekly mileage should be at an easy pace. And then 20% can be at those harder effort paces. So you want to make sure we're keeping that ratio and that percentage pretty pretty clean cut around 20%. So that's why when we're talking about these long run workouts, it doesn't mean that we're going out for 10 miles and knocking out, you know, 10 miles a half marathon pace. Definitely not. We're going to be focusing on, okay, what is your entire weekly mileage for the whole week? So if you're running 40 miles a week, that means 30% of, or 30 miles should be at an easy pace because it's 80% of your weekly mileage. And then that allows for 10 miles to be at a hard workout effort. And so if you're doing a workout during the week that's, let's say it's four by one mile, um, that gives you six more miles that you can add in at a faster pace. And so what that might look like in a long run workout would be two by three miles at you know marathon pace or maybe half marathon pace for this individual. Um, so you really want to be cognizant of not overdoing it. I know that can be tempting. And if you're getting into some of those bigger long run workouts during marathon training and you're, you're trying to go like 10 miles at marathon pace, well, if you're only running 40 miles in a week, that's your entire hard effort for the week. So you only get one, you know, you only get one workout. So you want to be really aware of what you're doing and making sure you're not going more than 20% of your weekly mileage as a hard effort. But I definitely think in this case for half marathon training, and she seems very well within the 80-20 rule, uh, that it would be a great way to not only maximize your schedule because you're saying that, hey, I'm busy during the week. So it gives you a little bit more time on the weekend to do that workout. 
but also it gives you a way to kind of get that extra edge. So even as athletes progress, we actually suggest that some of those long runs be at maybe a more of a harder effort because as you kind of toe the line of reaching closer to your potential, we do have to start adding in more stress variables and getting closer to um, just getting really outside of your comfort zone because sometimes the stress of just doing you know nine miles easy isn't going to give you results anymore and so that's when you really know okay it's time to maybe add in a little bit of pace work because just running nine miles isn't a stress for my body anymore Um, so that's really important to add that in so Jason do you have anything to add to this when should I start doing um, workouts into my long run or how do I know if I should not do this? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're training for a half marathon and you are at a level where you're probably doing, you know, I would say eight miles or more, um, a handful of times during your training cycle, you know, if you're a beginner half marathon, you might only run one, eight mile, one ten mile and, and be done with it. So I would probably not incorporate any pace work, um, if you're that type of athlete, but if, if you're a little bit, um, you know, more experienced or you're doing kind of your, this is your second, third, fourth half, that sort of thing, you're doing kind of multiple runs over eight mile distance or over an hour. Um, then you could probably start to sprinkle them in. And, um, you know, I, when you were talking about the 80, 20 thing, it kind of made me think of, you know, there might've been a time where most of us, we do tip the line and, and creep over 20, but it's probably followed up with a cutback week after. And so, thinking about how does, you know, how we structure the training plan to make sure that if you are, you know, adding extra stress to your body or you have like a 10K race or a 10 mile race on the calendar, obviously you might kind of go over that 20%. So it's important that you um, factor in the cutback after that week to allow your body a chance to kind of reset to make sure that um, we don't continue with another intense week. Yeah, definitely good things to add in there. And I know that this can vary so much on an individual basis. So when we talk on podcasts, it can just be just very broad spectrum. And I know a lot of people want to know, like, how does this apply to my training specifically? And that's why working with a coach can be clutch, right? You know that they know about your background. They can really advise you based on what your athlete background is, what your goals are, and make sure you're not doing too much too soon, but also make sure you're challenging yourself enough so that you are getting the results that you're hoping for. And that's why working with a coach can be a really big game changer. And that is something that really helped with my training. And that is why I love to coach people because I can help them reach that next level because a lot of people have a ton of potential within and just having a coach that can help with the accountability to what your goals are and really get to know your background and train specifically to you can help you really reach your potential. And so if you want to try us out for a free seven-day trial, we would love to get to know more about your background and help with your running journey. So if you fill out the form at our website, www.runforprs.com, we can get started with a free seven-day trial right away. Again, that's www.runforprs.com. So we hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for tuning in.